I don't know how many of you know who Catherine of Genoa uh, was, but um, she was born in 1447, so quite a few years ago, um, to a prominent religious family in Italy. And her father was the viceroy of Naples, and two members of her close family had been popes. So this is obviously somebody who's born into status. And, and her life was definitely one of religion, but it was kind of religion couched in privilege and status. And in 1463, she married a man named Giuliano Adorno, who was a very wealthy but also rather worldly man. And basically that marriage promised to kind of continue that lifestyle where, where devotion to God was always couched in privilege and status, and those were the real things that were going to drive life. But God had other plans, and the unthinkable happens. And in 1475, a series of political and financial tragedies um, reduced the fortunes of the couple to nearly nothing. And with the small amount that they had left, they moved into the slums of Genoa to live with the poor. Giuliano actually ended up becoming part of the Third Order of St. Francis, um, not because he was overtly religious or had a conversion experience, but because it was a way to get steady work and a little bit of support from the church. Um, and likewise, Catherine found herself working in a hospital, which is a far cry from the professional sterilized environment that we think of today. A hospital then is where people went to die. And it was, and it was dirty, and it, and it was devoid of hope a lot of times, and she found herself working in those kind of conditions. And even that, that small respite wouldn't last very long for her because in 1479, Giuliano died very suddenly, leaving Catherine alone in the slums to work in the hospital and live in the attached monastery. And you would think that, that such a fall from such great privilege and status to this would either have, have desensitized her to God or just made her angry at God, but what it actually ended up doing was it... it, it it, it um, lit a fire for a desire of knowing God more fully. Um, she ended up becoming the matron mother of that hospital in Italy, um, a woman devoted to the care of the poor, to a contemplative life of dwelling on the presence of God, and for the mentoring of women who were desiring a deep spiritual connection with Christ Jesus. And her writings are full of life and fervor and creativity and inspiration. And after her death, they were condensed into two works. The one is known as the dialogue, and the other one is known as life and teachings. And they're still considered to be some of the keener insights of the day into the pure love of God and also the human struggle to accept that love of God. In, the, in, in Life and Teaching, she reflects on this transformation process that happened and that was taking place in her loss of status and possession and comfort and spouse and all of these things. And, and in that transformation and about that transformation, she says this, God gives us his light in but an instant, allowing us to know all that we need to know in that moment. No more is given to us than is necessary in his plan to lead us to perfection day by day, moment by moment. We cannot seek this light. It's given to us from God only as he chooses. And neither do we know how it comes or how we're even able to know that it is. We just receive it. And if we try to know more than we've been made to know, we ultimately accomplish nothing. We find ourselves simply stuck, waiting like a stone with no capacity beyond ourselves until he draws near and brings us to life. Therefore, I resolved that I should not weary myself with seeking beyond what God desires me to know or has given me the capacity to understand. Instead, I chose 
and still choose to abide in the peace of the understanding that God has given me. And I will let this nearness occupy my mind. If we are to see properly, we must pluck out of our eyes our own presumptions. If we gaze too long at the sun, we will become blind. And in this manner, I think, does pride blind many of us who desire to know too much about our circumstances. When I think about this contentment to be limited in our knowledge and yet still striving for the nearness of God and his understanding in our lives, I really, really see the heart of the last chapters of Job in Catherine's words. See, I used to think that the book of Job was the Bible's answer to the philosophical question of the origins of evil and the problem of pain. But then I read it. And what I mean by that is, is I actually went through it all looking for the commentary on the question of why suffering, only to realize 42 chapters later that that question was actually more my question than God's question. I mean, to be sure... Don't get me wrong, the book of Job has a lot to say to us about questions related to the issues of life's incomprehensible calamities and cruelties. But it doesn't specifically address the question of why. And I think if we start looking too hard for that particular answer that's beyond us, like Catherine said, we will end up a bit frustrated and even a bit blinded to what it does have to say to us. I think it's really important for us to consider because often I think we seem to pattern our church experience and even our relationship with God around answering our own questions. I don't want to come across as too critical, but I do think we need to beware a misplaced emphasis when we look around and see most of our churches designing sermons or classes or even church identity around the answering of questions like, how do I fix my marriage? Or how do I raise good kids? Or what are the seven keys to financial success? Or even, dare I say, why does a good God allow good people to go through bad things? Those are all great questions to be sure, except maybe the health and wealth one, okay? But, you know, I, mm, all right? I, but even, even still, I would, I would say that God has definitely a desire for for what we do as spouses or as parents or how we handle money or how we handle our job or how we handle our friends or, or how we handle our influence any of those kind of things but here's the thing the bible's not about directly answering all of those questions and and god god reveals a lot in scripture about how to live life and he reveals a lot in the incarnation of his son about how to live life but he often does not answer my questions. He answers them indirectly by showing off his word and showing off his son. And, and I think it's important to realize sometimes that our crucial questions may not be quite as crucial to God. It is not that he does not care. That's not what I'm saying. And it's not that our questions are not important. But I believe that our, our questions are less important than the questions that God chooses to raise himself in Scripture and in the person of Jesus. And I think if we're willing to let those questions start to have a priority in our hearts and lives, 
it will either answer the questions that we have or it is or at kind of as, as Catherine alludes to it's going to make the nearness of God overcome our need to have all of those questions answered and we will be more than satisfied with the nearness of God even in the lack of concrete answers at times While the book of Job may raise a few questions, more than a few questions for us, God chooses to raise three questions related to suffering in Job. And the first question we took on last week, it was the devil's question. Does Job fear God for no reason? Is Job's faith just a refined form of selfishness? Because God's given him all this stuff and now Job gives him faith and it's all transactional, right? And the answer that we came to last week was, no, it's not. Job has a deep faith with roots beyond circumstantial rightness in his life. Job's empowered to endure through suffering by God because his faith is grounded in the reality of a God that loves and knows intimately the suffering that he endures. And it's a viable pattern for our faith as we journey through suffering. And so we took that on last week, and this week I want to answer the other two questions, or take a look at the other two questions that God raises and poses in the book of Job. And that is this. First, there is the question of, do righteous people suffer? And that may seem like a really, really easy question to answer, but the implications are big. Okay? And the second, possibly harder question is, is God still righteous? even when he allows, or in the narrative of Job, even when he ordains suffering. Is he still righteous? We're going to get to that second one in a little bit. First, I want, to, I want to look at this first question. The answer to the first question, do righteous people suffer? Or do those who have faith in God and live in obedience to his word suffer even if they haven't sinned? That's an easy one. The answer is yes, they do. Job is proof positive of that. And, and I'm sure you know a lot of people that, that, that identify with Job in that, okay? There are people all around us who are trying to live in the pattern of God who suffer for seemingly no reason whatsoever, okay? Or it's, it's definitely not connected at all to their righteousness or their unrighteousness, okay? Three times Job gets described as righteous, blameless, even unique in his lack of sin, from his own mouth, God says, have you considered him? There's nobody else on the earth quite like him in his righteousness, in his devotion to me. Two times of those three times that Job is described as righteous, it comes from the mouth of the Lord directly. It's not somebody else's opinion. It's God's opinion about him, that he's a righteous person. And yet, horrendous suffering comes into his life anyway and turns it upside down, specifically as a testing of faith, not as a punishment of sin. And yet, the bulk of the book of Job is Job's three friends trying to argue against that idea. And I think it's important to realize that what's evident to us is not evident to them. We have this satellite view of Scripture. We get to take a peek into the throne room of God. They don't. They don't get the first chapter. They don't get to see any of that. 
and I think that should make us identify with them a little more than we think. We wonder why they spend all of these chapters trying to convince Job of this thing that is so obviously wrong. Well, here's the thing. They have no idea. They're like us. We got no idea. Stuff happens, and we are left with our limited human faculty and understanding to try and make sense of it. And this is how they try to make sense of it. And if we can, because they're so much like us, so before we just dismiss them and say, well, they're, they were completely wrong, okay, it's not because Job's sinful, he's righteous, and righteous people can still suffer, I think we need to look at why they take the stance they take, and frankly, the fact that they do a lot of things right. And so before we take the speck, or log, as it were, out of their eyes, of their presumptions that may be our presumptions as well, we should look around that log and see some of what they did was very, very, very commendable. I think the most commendable thing that they did was their initial compassion and sympathy when they arrived. They just stopped their lives and they journeyed to where Job is, which may be no small task. This is, this is the ancient world. I have no idea how far away they are from Job. I have no idea how much time to take. It's not the same as like hopping a bus, Okay. They put their life on hold, they go, and they just sit with him in silence for seven days. They don't say anything. They just commiserate with him in silence at, at, the, at the gravity of what's going on. I mean, think about it. Would you be willing to skip a week of work to attend to somebody who was in pain that was your friend? Okay, we think of that as a big sacrifice now. This was a major sacrifice these guys are not looking to condemn. They are actually looking to support. And they not only start well, they finish well. When God tells them of their error in the last chapter and asks them to reconcile to him, they dutifully obey. They fully obey. Even when it means swallowing their pride and making a huge sacrifice to God through Job, who is the one that they've been convinced the entire time is the one that needs reconciliation rather than them. But when God illuminates, they obey. And that's saying something. And even when you look at the words of counsel that get them in trouble, there are some nuggets of gold in the rubble. There really are. First, whether it's in calm dialogue or heated debate, I don't think there's any denying that they genuinely have Job's best interest at heart. Like I said, they're not looking to be proved right. They're trying to get him to the point where he will confess the sin that's in his life that's obviously there so that he can be reconciled to God. They're they are earnestly giving it their best shot to try and get him to where he needs to be so that he can be reconciled to God. There's no question about their motives or their intention. It's just what ends up happening in practice as a result. Okay? And even, and, and, and even, though, even though their argument doesn't work, it is, it is beautifully spoken, and in most contexts their arguments are true. I don't think it's any accident that the words of Job's three friends are quoted six different times in the New Testament. And alluded to once by Jesus himself. Jesus even saw some wisdom in these fools. All right? And so I don't want to dismiss that. But that's the bright side of the log. Okay? Now we're going to now we're gonna have to look at the dark side of this deep brown tree that's like sticking out of their retinas. Okay? 
God makes it really clear in chapter 42 that the cardinal problem for these guys is the way that they speak about Job, but more especially, the way that they speak about God. Twice, almost back to back, God tells them, you have not spoken what is right or accurate or true about me. And the interesting thing is it's hard to see where they actually speak wrongly about God. And they're stopped. Um, They talk about his righteousness. They talk about his justice. They talk about his works and power. They never say things like, God doesn't care about you or God's too busy to this. Or maybe he's just a capricious God who doesn't love you. I mean, like, they never say anything that would be considered slander. In fact, anything, they're, they're exalting God and being like, Job, how can you question the way God's doing things? He's God. You can't question that. I mean, and, and you go, okay, so where exactly, are they, where exactly are they misrepresenting God? The thing is, it's not, the problem's not what they say about God. The problem's what they're saying about God in the context of Job's sufferings. His innocent sufferings. That's the key. See, for Job's three friends, the scales of divine justice read only one way, and they are very easy to weigh. Logic goes like this. If humanity suffers, it's because God is punishing sin. Even as a benevolent God through corrective action and discipline. If that's the way it is, Job is is obviously suffering a great deal. Therefore, it goes, God is punishing or correcting sin even benevolently as a good God in Job's life. Does that train of logic make sense to everybody? It should. Because here's the thing. Most times it's true. Most times it's true. Okay, that's, that's the real supreme irony is that what they're saying is not untrue. It is theoretically and theologically true even though it's untrue in these circumstances. It doesn't rightly apply to Job's situation. In many instances, their counsel of you reap what you sow is dead on. And frankly, we need some sermons like that in a world that is mostly a fairly for-profit existence for us. You look at how much their counsel is, is look, if you're in it for yourself, it's going to lead to destruction. I don't care where you are in life. Ultimately, if you're in life for yourself rather than full devotion to God, it's going to lead to destruction in some areas of your life. Man, we could use some sermons like that, right? Okay, I'll be making some up. But my point is, is that, that they are great for repentance. They are dead right. Sin always, always has consequences. Various unavoidable sufferings of sorts that enter into our existence. Always. That's a universal. But here's where they're dead wrong. Is in the idea that suffering always points back to sin. Okay? Do you get the logic here? Okay, A, sin, inevitably leads to B, suffering. But see, the thing is, is B doesn't always lead back to A. And this faulty thinking is very much still around in Jesus' day. You look in the Gospel of John, and there's this exchange between him and the disciples where they come across a guy who's born blind, and, and the disciples are all like, okay, so answer this for us. Who sinned? Did he do something wrong in order to be born blind, or was it like his parents or his grandparents or somebody did something before that then led him to this horrendous state? Because... I mean, being born blind and not being able to see the glory of God's creation, this is so horrendous. 
There must be a really big sin somewhere for this to happen. And Jesus goes, guys, okay, let's go over this again. A can lead to B, but B doesn't always lead back to A. This suffering is not because of sin. This suffering is actually a gateway to the glorification of God. Oh, hey, that's what Job's are too. Remember, the whole point of Job's suffering is that God can say, no, I am proved right when I say that regardless of the way life goes, humanity can and should bless me as their God. Whereas Satan's like, it's all transactional. It's all transactional, man. Faith is easy when life is easy. You make life hard, you take away, the, you, you take away comfort, people are going to just curse you to your face. And God's like, some may, but he won't. God gets glorified, right? God gets glorified through the suffering. And, and I think we do this more than we realize. Not, not necessarily specifically in the question of suffering versus sin, but I think in our assumption that we can create maxims about God and judgments on people based on our limited understanding that should always, always apply no matter what. Okay? Now, culturally, we have totally kicked back against this idea. And now we say, you know, like our favorite Bible verses, do not judge or you will be judged. Okay? And, boy, that is just like totally ripping the words out of Jesus' mouth and smacking them around and doing all kinds of dumb stuff to him. Okay? Like, that's not what he says. Jesus is not saying you can't judge. Jesus is making a point. He's saying, hey, especially if you look at the second part of that verse, the measure that you use will be measured to you. Therefore, since judging is a natural thing that is about being human, we have to make judgments in order to sort out our world and make sense of it. Okay? You can't go through life not making a judgment. I am sorry. I would really like to see you try. Okay? Because then you will, you'll starve to death. Because you can't figure out what's good for you to have for breakfast in the morning. And you're going to spend all day working on that. Because you can't make a judgment on, like, this would be better than that. And then you're going to starve and die. Okay? I, I mean, you can't go through life without making even minor judgments. So you can't go through life without making major judgments. The question is, what guides your judgment process? Is the measure that you use full of divine grace and allows God to be God and allows him to work as he would work? Or is it rigid and structured and doesn't allow any room for growth? Because if you use one, if you use one that is full of grace, then Grace will be measured to you as well. If you use one that is completely boxed in and doesn't allow for God to grow, guess what? You won't either. And so what he's saying is, you need to allow God to be God. And I think this is where we and Job's friends lose sight of wisdom and righteousness in that what they say about God is that he must be this, and this must be this way, based on my understanding. It's actually idolatry that they become guilty of. Do you get that? This is interesting. It's actually idolatry that they become guilty of because they start substituting their model for how God should work instead of actually really seeking God and how he is actually working. It is easier for them to box God into their logic and be like, there's got to be some sin in Job's life, rather than saying, okay, if he really, really is righteous, 
what is God actually doing here? That thought never enters into their minds. Never, not ever. Okay? And because they box him in, it's no longer really God they're speaking of. It's their own assumption. It's their own image of God that they are speaking of. That's idolatry. But even more than, it leads them to incorrect assumptions about how he's working and what his plans are and what he thinks about other people, specifically Job. Maybe we can identify with that more than we think because this idea of boxing God into my understanding rather than allowing the fullness of God to shape my understanding, I see that all the time in my life. I write a story about who he is and what he does. I try to know more than what he allows rather than humbly allowing God to be the one who writes the story and who illuminates me into his righteousness. And it's here that Job's friends ultimately fail to answer that last big question that God proposes in the text. Namely, is God still righteous when righteous people suffer? Well, see, the thing is, is if righteous people don't suffer, then God couldn't be righteous if they did. That's the way the thinking goes, right? And that's how they find themselves not only making inaccurate judgments about Job, but now speaking falsely about God as well. Well, righteous people don't suffer, so God couldn't be righteous if they did. God's like, you just said I wasn't righteous. I'm sorry. What did you just say? We have a problem now. You know, I, I, right? And, and Job, on the other hand, maintains his righteousness, not because he has all the answers, not because he even has any understanding, or because he even has a better attitude. Okay? There are, there are times in the narrative where Job's attitude is just plain poor. But what maintains his righteousness is his refusal to make inaccurate judgments. It is maintained by a refusal to speak of God in a small box of only human logic. Job is just sure that if God could just show up and draw near and explain things, all human logic would just fall away and it'll all make sense. And that's his, that's his play. I, like, I just wish God would show up because then this would all make sense. I just wish God would draw near and just hear me go like, I don't understand this because then it would all make sense. And guess what? God does. And it does. Just totally not in the way that Job expected it to. See, God does show up. God draws near, and he starts asking questions. He even starts to cross-examine Job's understanding about the cosmos and God's working in the cosmos, in the, in the, in the, in the universe, as it were. And I have always found Job's response to be fascinating because here's the thing. If Job is as righteous as God claims, why does he repent so quickly and fully? thought he was righteous what does he have to repent of don't doesn't repentance just happen when people are wrong when they're guilty when they're sinful interesting what if there is such a thing as the repentance of the righteous what if that's what we're seeing right here is that is that Job can show this amazing quality of the idea that even in our best areas, 
God is still looking to form and shape and change our hearts. See, Job doesn't change out of guilt or conviction of sin. He changes because instead of God hearing his case, God presents his own case. And the reality and the nearness of God make Job realize he's been asking the wrong questions. Of course the God of the universe is loving and righteous and purposeful in what's going on in Job's life, even in the devastation. And the simple fact is, is that if Job can't even answer the question of how the heavens were measured out or how many cups of water are in the ocean, the answer to what all this devastation has to do with the overarching plan of God, that one should probably elude him as well. Now, I realize that our questions are more complex. We talk about quarks and Higgs boson particles and cool things like that, okay? But I don't care how complex our questions get. The more we look at God's slew of cross questions in the narrative of Job, the less we realize that we've got answers to any of it. It isn't guilt that makes Job repent. It's awe at the reality of a God who is way more out of the box than even Job thought. He says, My ears had heard your truth, but your nearness changes everything. And I will gladly toss my questions into the dust and the ashes in order to be enthralled by your questions. And say, who am I to talk about all this stuff that I got no idea about? I'm just going to sit in wonder and go, wow. Wow. And in this, Job proves his righteousness. And God gives him a new title because of it, too. He calls him my servant. Job was already righteous, but now he's a servant. And I love that. Because a servant is somebody who gets their role and their place in God's universe and is actively becoming a directed participant in furthering that universe in the way that God's moving. And it once again challenges and changes everything that we understand about suffering and trial and about our assumptions about God because it is devastation, not blessing, that empowers and enlightens the righteous Job. Even a repentance toward a greater righteousness to come. I think that's incredible. Changes everything I think about repentance. Changes everything I think about suffering. Changes everything I think about hardship. I would be negligent if I didn't finish our look at Job with a simple statement of the fact that Job points us to Jesus Christ. And this is not just a quip about how the Bible is all revelatory material pointing to Jesus, even though I do not believe that that is untrue. Okay, I do think that's a true statement, but I want us to consider this point, this very, very good point. Listen to this gospel story, please. A sinless man with great riches and power and status is humbled completely by God who visits great pain and devastation upon him, even though he is completely undeserving of it. The people around him falsely assume his guilt, and they condemn him. But then God steps in and vindicates him, and through the suffering and display of God's power, restores him to an even greater status, which includes giving him the ability to intercede with God, to restore the righteousness with God to the people who condemned him in the first place. Now, where am I preaching out of there? Am I preaching out of Job chapter 42 or am I preaching out of Philippians 2? Am I preaching about Job or am I preaching about Jesus? 
the wisdom for us is that both were put in the exact same place. And honestly, if we're serious about following the steps of Jesus Christ, our story probably ought to look something like that too. To where when status or power or position or, or things or comfort or whatever it is gets taken away, it becomes an opportunity for us to become even greater servants. That's how we obtain the title of servant, isn't it? It was the path of Jesus, and it was the path of Job, and now the suffering servant is our road as well at times. The challenge for us today, church, is the same as it was for Job and for his friends and for Catherine of Genois and even Jesus, and, and that is this. What questions will take priority in our lives? Especially in the light of suffering or pain. See, we can either choose to keep obsessing with our own questions, to box God in with them, to frustrate ourselves and trying to know more than we can know about it, or we can go the route of humility and the route of peace. And I pray that we're going to choose that path. Where the questions that God asks and answers in our lives become more than enough. Where we become so captivated by them that we will repent and allow God to change us, even in our righteousness, and where we are willing to take on the title of servant, someone who is willingly given over to seek his kingdom and his righteousness and to let his wisdom be displayed through us to a world that is desperately in need of wisdom. And so may we be those people, church. May it be that way today and always in our lives. Amen and amen. Let's stand and let's worship.